So as many of you know, Gina and I, my wife is Gina, as many of you know, Gina and I were missionaries to Madrid, Spain. Um, we were what's called midterm missionaries. Midterm missionaries means that you commit to a contract of three years or less as opposed to like 20 years. And so we were midterm missionaries in Madrid. And the reason we went to Madrid was because we wanted to work with Moroccan immigrants. That was our whole focus. Now, if you don't know anything about Morocco, um, Morocco is in northern Africa, and it is part of what's called the 1040 window. Have you, if you've heard of the 1040 window, can you kind of raise your hand or say what, what? Okay. I'm really, one of my New Year's resolutions is to get you guys out of the stiffness of being afraid to say what, what. And so, what, what, you can say holler, you say, you say amen, you can say woo, woo, the whistles go woo, woo, whatever you guys need to do, okay? So, we went to Madrid to work with Moroccan immigrants. Um, it's in the 1040 window. So, the 1040 window is basically a rectangular area um, that covers North Africa, the Middle East, uh, Asia, and it's between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude, okay, above the equator. And so that, that belt, if you will, that window, includes the vast majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. It's also the area of the world that's considered the least reached. So the vast majority of people who have no access to the gospel are in that general area called the 1040 window. And so our call to missions, this was, I guess, about, when did we go, Gina, 12 years ago? About 12 years ago, um, our call to missions, and specifically, though this began in like 2001, really, our call to missions, and specifically our call to Muslims, came at a rather inopportune time for fundraising. And in large part because, as many of you remember, in 2001, the World Trade Center towers had been destroyed in a terrorist attack. I was, I guess, a freshman? I was beginning my sophomore year of college. I was beginning my sophomore year of college. And so now, even still, when we started, when we officially became missionaries, which I think was around 2008, we were officially um, you know, like pronounced members of the mission agency. We were involved in a war as a nation. We were involved in a war on two fronts, right? We were involved, still had presence in Iraq, presence in Afghanistan. And the reality is many Christians were filled with all kinds of emotions, hatred, disdain um, towards Muslims, Right? And so here we are trying to fundraise so that we can go work with Muslims. And there's a whole section of the Christian church that despises Muslims as we're raising money to go and do this. And so when we began fundraising, we actually even had some pushback. If I'm honest with you guys, we had some pushback. Probably the most pronounced example was, and because I'm sure there are people who said things about us behind our back, right? We actually had a couple who were our friends, who said to us, to our face, that they were really excited to support us until we told them we were going to work with Muslims. And then once they realized that we were going to Muslims, it created this tension in their heart that was really difficult for them, and they had to wrestle through it. And I appreciate the fact that they were honest. I appreciate the fact that they were self-aware. Now, we might gasp with shock that, you know, Christians would think like that. 
But the truth is, we all think like that, right? Maybe it's not necessarily about Muslims. Maybe you don't view Muslims at your, as your enemy. Hopefully you don't. But you might have strong opinions about Democrats, Republicans, communists, homosexuals, people who have had abortions, drug addicts, certain denominations, religious leaders, your neighbors, coworkers, inmates, and so on and so on and so on. You see, because the reality is that all of us have difficulty loving other people at times, especially when the people who we are challenged to love are people who have either hurt us or hurt someone close to us or done something that directly harmed us. So did you guys know that Jonah is a love story? Jonah's a love story. Jonah's a love story because in Jonah, we see a loving God sending a resistant missionary to a rebellious people who were, quite frankly, his enemy. God told Jonah to go to them. He said, I want you to go to them. I want you to warn them about the coming wrath of God so that they might repent. He says, go and warn your enemies. Go and tell the enemies that God's going to judge them, but God's warning them because he's not just a God of wrath and judgment, though he is that as well, contrary to popular view, but he's also a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God of love. And so we're introduced to this main theme of Jonah, which is this, that the Lord is a God of worldwide grace, worldwide mercy, worldwide love. He desires all people to be saved. Jonah is a love story. You see, contrary to the assumption at the time of Jonah, the assumption of the Jewish nation was that God really only wanted to save Jews and everybody else was goyim, and, he, and that's just how they viewed things. And we need to wrestle with those same truths because there's many people who feel like God listens to country music and he just wants to save Americans or he just wants to save white people or he just wants to save black people or rich people or poor people or he only wants to save people who grew up in a Judeo-Christian framework. But the reality is that God wants to save all kinds of people from all kinds of nations who struggle with all kinds of wicked sins. Why? Because he's a gracious, merciful, loving God, and he wants every nation represented in his kingdom. Jonah is a love story. So, title, author, date of writing. Today's just an introduction to Jonah. So, the main character in the book of Jonah is, anybody want to guess? Jonah, you guys are so smart. I don't care what your friends say about you behind your back. You guys are sharp, okay? The main character in the book of Jonah is Jonah. Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, if your Israelite history is a little fuzzy, don't worry. That's okay. Basically, here's the general idea. Early in the Jewish monarchy, there was a civil war of sorts, and it caused the nation to split into a northern part and a southern part. The northern part is often called Israel or Samaria when you read the Old Testament. The southern part is often called the southern kingdom or Judah, 
okay? And so there was this split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and Jonah is a prophet. A prophet is like a, a, a mouthpiece for God who speaks God's truth. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom. Now, because of the content of the book of Jonah, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Jonah, um, Jonah eventually gets swallowed by a big fish, and he's in that fish for three days, and then the fish spits him out into another country. It's kind of like an early forming of cruising. And if you're, and because of the content of Jonah, as well as the style, there's a literary style to the book of Jonah. It's actually extremely satirical. Because of the content and the style of Jonah, many people over the years have believed that Jonah wasn't a real person and that this book is like a parable or a fable or something like that. But we actually see Jonah listed as a real person in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where he goes to the king uh, Jeroboam and he prophesies saying to Jeroboam, even you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel, God is actually going to use you to redeem some of the borderland that was taken by your enemies. And indeed, that comes true. And so uh, we also see that Jesus refers to Jonah as a real person in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so all that said, it's best to assume that Jonah was, in fact, a real person and that this is, in fact, a true story, even if its writing is exceptionally literary. And when I say literary, I mean that it's um, a very beautifully written work of art in its writing. It's not just a description of facts, okay? This isn't dragnet. All right, so truthfully, we don't know who wrote Jonah. I know that blows your Sunday school mind wide open because his name is in the title, right? But we don't know who wrote Jonah. Now, the personal details, like his prayers in chapters 2 and 4, those are obviously intimate details. That could imply that it's written by Jonah himself. It could also imply that it's written by one of Jonah's contemporary prophets, and Jonah filled him in, and he told him all about it, and the guy wrote it down. It also could imply that an author at a later date um, you know, propelled by the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Jonah from historical documents and source texts. That's also possible. We don't really know, but it doesn't change the fact that Jonah is a love story, okay? So when did all this take place? So as I mentioned before, we know that Jonah lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II ruled for most of the first half of the 8th century, but we don't know how old Jonah was when he was prophesying to Jeroboam. We don't know if he was 16. We don't know if he was 60. We don't know if this was at the beginning of Jeroboam or the end of Jeroboam. We just know it was sometime in that general range, which means that Jonah and this story takes place sometime between 840 B.C. and 700 B.C. But when it takes place doesn't change the fact that Jonah is a love story. Thanks, my love. can always count on you. You see what I'm doing? This is called rep <laughs> repetition, so that next tomorrow when you guys talk about the sermon, you go, what was Jonah about? And your husband goes, Jonah's a love story, because I'm saying it over and over again. These are the fancy things they teach you in seminary, all right? So where did all this take place? Okay, well, Jonah is primarily focused on a city, and that city is called Nineveh. 
And in the book of Jonah, as we're going to see, Nineveh is described as that great city. Um, Nineveh was a major city in the empire of Assyria, not to be confused with Syria. And at some point in time, Nineveh actually became the seat of power of Assyria. In other words, it became the capital of the Assyrian empire. The city was right along the Tigris River in what would be modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Okay? And so right where Mosul, Iraq was... Ironically, which was the source of the seat of power for ISIS, was right where Nineveh was. All right, so Nineveh, Mosul, Iraq. That's what I want you to picture in your brain. Right on the Tigris, there it is. Now, this city was a major, major metropolitan. Matter of fact, it says in chapter one that it, or chapter three, that it would take days to walk through the city. Huge city, okay? Um, and it's a source of wealth, it was a source of arts, it was a source of culture, and a source of everything that comes with that stuff, right? And so Nineveh was in its peak around 880 B.C. to 825 B.C., then it declined, and then at some point in time it turned around, who knows if this is all connected to Jonah, and then under um, the king called Tiglath Pileser III, it became really its peak. And it was Tiglath Pileser III who defeated Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, ransacked them, and exiled them all over the ancient world, including Assyria. And so that was the Assyrian king, King Tiglath Pileser III, who came in, conquered the northern kingdom, and moved everybody around. So what do we need to know from all of this stuff? You need to know that Nineveh was a seat of power for Israel's enemies and that Jonah represented a nation that they would very soon crush, kill, and exile under the boot of domination. Okay? So I'm saying all these things. I want you to put yourself in, in Jonah's place because it's easy to read Jonah and be like, this guy's a loser. Okay? But I want you to re think about this. Here's Jonah. There's a kingdom. That kingdom hates him. He hates them. They're going to pretty soon destroy Israel and take over the whole shebang. Okay? And now God is saying to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, which is filled with idolatry, Nineveh, which is filled with paganism, Nineveh, which is filled with all kinds of wickedness, and God wants to show them love because Jonah is a... Thanks. You guys are catching on. This would be like, and this is, this is I think it's so fascinating that this is Mosul, Iraq, okay? This would be like if God had sent you during the peak of ISIS to Mosul, Iraq, to, to say to them, God's going to judge you. How do you feel like that would have gone? From what you know of ISIS, how do you feel like that would have gone? Not too bueno. First, you can relate to Jonah because he probably hated them. Okay? Second, you can relate to Jonah because they certainly hated him. And third, you can relate to Jonah because if you had been sent to Mosul, Iraq during the peak of ISIS, do you feel like that would have been a death sentence? So if you put yourself in Jonah's shoes, do you feel like Jonah probably thought this was a death sentence? So you probably wouldn't be too pumped about going either. So who would want to go? I probably wouldn't. 
You probably wouldn't either. But God wanted him to go. Why? Because Jonah's a love story. So what are the key lessons that we're supposed to get out of the book of Jonah? So you're going to, Lord willing, you'll begin reading. There's only four chapters, right? You're going to begin reading Jonah this week. Maybe you'll read it through this week, or maybe you'll read it through slowly over the next couple weeks. But as you read through it, you can make a note of these lessons, and you can look for them, okay? This is, we're equipping you to read as we teach. So what are the, some of the lessons that we get from the book of Jonah? Well, um, some commentators, com- commenters, I always wondered what it was, commenters, commentators, um, they, some people have said that Jonah is a book, follow me here, Jonah is a book about what God is doing in the world through us and what God is doing in us as we go out into the world. And I think that's an accurate summary. Did you follow me? I'll say it again. Jonah is a book about what God is doing in the world through me and then how he's changing me as I go out into the world. And so if you... If you're kind of walking with God, you probably know exactly what I mean, that we're always shocked that God is using us and then amazed what he does through us at the same time. So we see these dual purposes happening in the book of Jonah, and that is what God is doing through Jonah, which is quite amazing, but then also what God is trying to do in Jonah. And this becomes a metaphor, so to say, or a little object lesson or a small picture of what God is also desiring for all of Israel, okay? So one of the main lessons of Jonah is that God has compassionate love for all people and not just the nation of Israel. This is a big lesson that Israel needs to learn, and it needs to come out in this book because many Israelites, including Jonah, had a warped view of God's character, and they thought that God basically hated everybody who wasn't a Jew. That was this cultural perspective during this time period. And so in the story of Jonah, God is calling Jonah and the readers of Jonah, that would be us, to imitate God's heart for the world. Matter of fact, in a very tongue-in-cheek, satirical way, it says, to when God's talking to Jonah, he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. There's a great many people who live there, even cattle. And you're like, why does God keep talking about the cattle? He talks about the cattle a few times. And the idea here is that God cares about the Ninevites. He even cares about their cattle because he's a loving God. Another lesson from Jonah is the shocking satirical picture of the pagans in the story as compared to Jonah. Because every pagan in the book of Jonah is quicker to repent and more sincere in their repentance than Jonah, beginning in chapter 1. There's an almost satirical uh, poking fun at comparison between grumpy Jonah, who's a curmudgeon, and then all of these heathens who respond positively to the simplest call to repentance. Matter of fact, you could even argue that Jonah's repentance, if it is repentance, is short-lived and shallow while the pagans have this heartfelt, robust 
repentance. And so this underscores the spiritual pride of the prophet. It also pokes at the spiritual pride of the nation of Israel because he represents the nation at large. And it reminds the readers that Jews and Gentiles alike are equally in need of God's love and mercy. So in other words, just because you were born in America doesn't mean you need grace less than the guy who was born in southern Iraq, okay? But it's easy to buy into that lie, right? You say, well, I don't blow up babies, and you say those kinds of things, but you're not judged based on that. You're judged based on the fact that you're commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time, and the fact that you fell dead in Adam. That's the standard, okay? And so we need grace equally. And so the reader, as well as the Jews who God is speaking to, the Jews shouldn't be puffed up in their covenantal relationship, but instead they should approach it with humility. Are you guys following me? Okay. The third, third lesson in the book is how amazingly God responds to even a mustard seed of repentance. You know, you think about the prodigal son and how the prodigal son, he's got his whole speech prepared, right? But the father sees him from afar and is eager to receive him. We see that same heart of God in the book of Jonah when we realize that even the smallest mustard seed of repentance, God responds with power because God is a good and loving God. You see, the Jews had come to bank on their, on their heritage, but had forgotten that God is not like a man. God looks at the heart. And just as the Ninevites needed to turn their heart towards God in repentance, the Israelites would soon do the same. And actually, if they didn't do it, then they were going to fall under exile and domination. And ironically, the Ninevites repent, but the Israelites do not. Now, obviously, these key themes, they kind of bleed into each other, right? They're all interconnected. But what we need to realize and learn from these things is that our own spiritual pride often blinds us to the needs of others and to our own need for God's grace and mercy. And so what we do is we think, my life is pretty much fine, and so therefore, I'm fine. That guy definitely needs forgiveness, but I'm actually doing okay. Those who are the slowest to see their own sin will be the slowest to show love towards other people. This should remind us of Jesus' words when he said, he who has been forgiven of much loves much, but he who has been forgiven of little loves little. And so the lack of love in Jonah's heart for the Ninevites reveals to us that Jonah has a spiritual pride in his own heart where he doesn't realize his own desperation for forgiveness. And it takes being in the belly of a whale where some commentators actually suggest that he was dead in the belly of the whale. It took death to himself for Jonah to realize that desperation. Even for us, living some 2,200 years after Jonah, the book should stand as a warning for us against spiritual pride, where we begin to feel entitled to God's grace. And when this starts to happen, what happens, and you can always, you always know when you start to feel entitled, because what, the first thing that happens is you start to become condescending towards other people. And so you see someone who is struggling, you say, well, they shouldn't have been such an idiot. 
right? I'm not an idiot. That's why I'm not struggling. But by the grace of God, we'd all be struggling. And so we become calloused. We become condescending. We think that we somehow are worthy of God's grace, but other people are not. And so as you read Jonah, how do you read Jonah well? As my seminary professor used to say, how can you be a faithful reader? A faithful reader. Well, there's a danger in books like Jonah. And the danger in books like Jonah is that Jonah is not a fable. If you were going to define a fable, it's probably been a long time since you read Aesop's fable, unless you have a parent of small kids. A fable is characterized by its moral lesson. Fables are short tales that are passed down as folklore to teach listeners or readers the difference between right and wrong, or to give advice and to teach manners and things like that. You know, don't eat that candy in the woods, or a witch is going to eat you in the oven. You know, really heartwarming tales like that. You know what I mean? So Jonah's not a fable. In other words, Jonah is not a moralistic cautionary tale. It's not designed to teach you, make sure you're like the sailors and not like Jonah. It's not about behavior modification. Now, can you learn from good examples and bad examples? Of course you can, and there's plenty of them in this book. But this is ultimately, as we read books like Jonah, we remember this is ultimately about the character of our redemptive, loving God. And so what do we see? You can feel free to write these down if you want. First, we see that the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. There's an irony in the first chapter because Jonah says to the sailors, he's the God of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the land. And then Jonah tries to run away from him by taking a boat. Okay? And so the God who made the heavens and earth, Jonah, is in control. And that means he can send a storm. He can send a fish. He can send a plant. He can send a worm. He can send a man to do his bidding. And in the story of Jonah, he sends all of those different things because he's a sovereign Lord. And at the end of the day, all creation must bow before God and do his will. The second thing to keep in mind as you read Jonah and you think about the character of God is that the Lord is Savior. Thankfully, God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, he is capable. He has the power, the ability, and the will to save people. If he were not sovereign, I know we don't like God's sovereignty all the time. If God were not sovereign, he'd be incapable of saving you. Okay, and so remember that the next time you complain about the sovereignty of God because something isn't going well in your life, remember that were it not for the sovereignty of God, you'd be going to hell. Okay, and so keep that in your back pocket. It says in Jonah 2.9, the prophet pronounces, salvation belongs to the Lord, and that statement is true. Many people will find salvation in Jonah from the sailors to the Ninevites to the cattle. And we are reminded time and time again that God is a saving God, that he finds great joy in bringing people, even wicked people, to salvation and forgiveness. And the third thing is this, all people can be saved. The book of Revelation pictures people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, worshiping the lamb who was slain, Jesus. Salvation is offered to more than God's ancient chosen people, the Jews. They are the vehicle for the Messiah, but God offers salvation to everyone through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 
That means that no laundry list of sin is too great. It means no ethnic heritage is too tainted. It means no timeline is too short, as we see in the thief on the cross. All people can be saved if they repent, turn from their sins, and believe in Jesus for forgiveness. And the fourth, the fourth thing is that the Lord wants people to be saved. The Lord desires all men and women to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is his heartbeat, even though it will not be the reality that all will be saved. He wants them to see his tender kindness. He wants to show mercy. He wants to save people. This is why God the Father sent his Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world, that God has made remarkable promises to bring about this salvation, and God has done incredible works to bring these promises to fruition. And now he says that he desires all mankind to humble themselves before King Jesus and receive salvation, which leads us to the final reading point, and that's Jonah points to Jesus. Jonah points to Jesus. In John 7, 52, this is kind of a little, little freebie. This is like something Bible nerds think is interesting. Talking to you, Breton. In John 7, 52, the Pharisees replied to Jesus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Guess who was from Galilee? Jonah was from Galilee. Jonah was from Galilee. Perhaps the, the idea here in the rabbinical, pharisaical worldview is that Jonah was such a crummy missionary and prophet, it was as if the, he was the laughing stock of the prophets. And it's as if they were saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, do you know who else came from Galilee? Jonah. Is that the kind of prophet you're like? You're like Jonah? No, someone greater than Jonah comes in the God-man of Jesus. Yes, he comes from Galilee, but he's quite different from Jonah. Because unlike Jonah, Jesus runs to his enemies instead of running from them. Unlike Jonah, Jesus weeps over the wicked city instead of wringing his hands and waiting for judgment. Unlike Jonah, Jesus' heart is kind and compassionate, desiring to humble himself to the grave so he can love his enemies all the way to the end. But like Jonah, Jesus will spend three days in darkness, but it won't be the belly of a big fish. It will be a, a cold, dank tomb. Jesus is greater than Jonah, and we can learn about Jesus in the book of Jonah. See, Jonah is a love story, and Jonah ends with this implied, striking question, are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? That's the implied question at the end of Jonah. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemies? You see, as we read Jonah, we're going to be challenged in our lack of love for people who aren't like us, which actually means that we're going to be challenged in our lack of love for the Lord because, heaven forbid, we would be like Jonah who is offended by God's remarkable grace. We will be challenged to come to grips with the fact that God loves his enemies. Indeed, God loved us while we were his enemies. And I want you to know that this concept that we're going to be wrestling with over the next four weeks 
is especially important for us during these last days. And indeed, we are in the last days because it says in 1 John chapter 2, this is the last hour, okay? And if that was true 2,000 years ago, how much more true is it today that we are in the last hour? Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 10 to 14, and then many will fall away and they will betray one another and they will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. See, what we see here in Matthew 24, 10 to 14, if you work backwards, is that the end will come. But before the end, the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. And if you were a Jew hearing that, that would make you think of all of your enemies. And before that happens, or as that is happening, the love of many will grow cold. We live in a time where everything is assailing your love. And you have more reasons than ever before to hate every other idiot out there. But don't let your love grow cold. Don't fall away because the world makes you calloused and jaded. Remember that you have been pursued by a God with indestructible love. And he calls us to love as he has loved us. And so as we read Jonah, let us encounter the love of God and learn from it. So your action step this week is to take some time to read through Jonah slowly and ask the Lord to begin teaching you about his love and to reveal to you what might be choking out your love. All right, let's pray. Father God, we, we know that we do not love like you because your love is beyond comprehension, but we want to love more like you. And so, Father God, I pray that as we read Jonah, you would use this simple book and the power of your spirit to help us to learn more about your love. And I pray that we would grow through it and that we would find ourselves challenged by your love and desiring to love more like you. In your name we pray, amen.